Hi, and welcome to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. Before we get started, you might have noticed our gorgeous new logo created by our friend, Korean adoptee and episode 14 guest, the brilliant Australian comic artist, Meg O'Shea. Thank you again, Meg. We're just thrilled with it. We'd also like to give a shout out to our two new patrons, Lee and Katie. And also thank you to Mia for generously increasing your monthly donation. And look, while I'm here, thank you to all of our lovely patrons. Your support and encouragement really means a lot to us. In today's episode, we talk about Han, Chong, and healing with a wonderfully warm and passionate Christine Chong, a Korean-American spiritual care practitioner and activist. She talks to us about her non-linear pathway to chaplaincy work, her approach to ongoing healing, shared experiences between second generation and adopted Koreans, and more. Stay tuned till the end where Christine guides us through a self-chong healing practice, which you can try along with us as you listen. Christine Chong is a second-generation Korean-American chaplain, activist, and online editor for Inheritance Magazine. A former organizer, service provider, and researcher, Christine's ethos of spiritual care is rooted in the interconnectedness of spiritual and social change. Her praxis of care integrates liberationist, post-colonial, anti-capitalist, and eco-feminist ethics. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Christine. Um, yeah, lovely to meet you. Um, we, I guess we want to start by just asking how are you right now because um, it's been yeah, a crazy and challenging year. Um, yeah, um, thank you, Hannah. It's so nice to meet you and Ryan. Um, and thank you for asking. It's a, quite a difficult question to answer these days, I feel like, um, and important still to check in. Um, and uh, right now, I, I feel pretty good. Um, uh, just in terms of context, I'm sheltering in place with uh, my family and it's an intergenerational household. Um, and we have several members who are immunocompromised, including myself. So we're trying to be careful. Um, and I'm just thankful that we do have access to sort of, you know, just our basic necessities. We have housing, food, um, and there's a lot of, you know, grief overall that I'm sure like uh, many of us are feeling. Um, and on a lighter note, I am very thankful that the K-pop group BTS is so active <laughs> during the, all this. And I've been listening to their new album <laughs> the past few days. And um, yeah, for some uh, just self-care, I guess. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay and good right now. And I'm glad to connect with you two across different continents and time zones. And uh, I just feel that these moments of connection are just even more like profound and special during this time of isolation. And so... I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, one of the unexpected but really lovely things is I guess, yeah, I get to feel more connected with people overseas. And I don't know, it, it's kind of normalized, like reaching out to people mm. <laughs> transnationally. So that's that's been really cool. And it's been really lovely to make all these connections and um, especially with yourself. And we're really looking forward to this conversation. Um, so yeah, thanks again for, for joining us. So we, we did have that uh, little blurb about yourself that we started the episode with, but um, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and the work that you currently do? Sure. Um, so I'm currently based in Los Angeles, California, uh, which is on unceded Tongva territory. 
Um, and I am a daughter of uh, immigrants from Korea who came to the States in the 1970s um, through like family sponsorship. Um, and you know, that was made possible by the Immigration Act here in 1965 uh, during the civil rights movement. And I uh, just feel like that's really important to like amplify uh, during these times. And uh, I would say that a lot of my spiritual and religious formation occurred in the Korean immigrant church. Um, mm. And uh, my family and I, when we were part of so many different churches, because there were a lot of drama and politics, <laughs> it seemed like in every church we were at. Um, and when I was in about like junior high, my dad actually um, started pastoring his own church, a, a house church. And so um, I have a lot of, yeah, I think formative and traumatic experiences from that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, currently I am a parent to a one-year-old. Um, oh, wow. It's my first time parenting. So that's been quite a learning experience and, and life change. Um, and I should also note that, yeah, like since like my postpartum period, I've also been dealing with several chronic conditions, um, one of which was triggered specifically during my postpartum period. Um, and another that I've actually had for quite a while, but uh, I think never thought to name it until it was compounded by my other condition and also just COVID con like, uh, context. And so um, that's sort of, yeah, also where I, I'm navigating at the moment. Um, and in terms of the work that I do, um, I guess I would call myself a spiritual care practitioner. And the main modality that I've been trained in and I'm currently practicing is through chaplaincy, um, to which to me is the practice of accompaniment and uh, being with people. Um, some may call it a ministry of presence. Uh, while when people are in either moments or seasons of crisis or transition um, or discernment or any like notable uh, change in their life. And so uh, I am practicing as a community care chaplain uh, through a space that's facilitated by Faith Matters Network, which is an organization that equips faith leaders, community organizers, and activists uh, with spiritual resources um, as they you know, engage in social movements. And so that's one space that I'm currently a part of. And other communities of practice that I'm in, uh, one is a uh, Asian women in ministry um, space through the American Baptist denomination. Um, I'm not ordained by them or um, uh, beholden to that denomination, but I used to go to a church that was uh, very formative for me and have made some connections denominationally in that form. And I also meet with a regular group of some BIPOC friends and uh, we practice together, like in terms of just spiritual and breath work and uh, I think just learning together. Um, and then a few other facts, uh, I'm also an editor at Inheritance Magazine, uh, which you probably mentioned, and it's an online platform for Asian and Pacific Islander stories and experiences uh, to affirm API identity and experiences uh, within a broader uh, understanding uh, of the Christian faith. Um, and then finally, my partner and I, we uh, run a small like coffee roastery at home, <laughs> and wow. uh, we are both religious coffee drinkers. And so uh, this has been a really great way for us to connect with friends through the shared love and ritual of coffee. So that's just a little bit about myself and the work I do. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow, what a full and like rich wow. life. Um, <laughs> thank you for <laughs> receiving that way. <laughs> I like how you used a coffee adjective there, Hannah. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs>
yeah, so we learned about your, your work and practice through a KQT Cross NYC newsletter. Um, so big shout out to Sandy Hong and the rest of the steering committee. Um, so for those of listeners that don't know, KQT Cross NYC is a network of queer and trans organizers based in the U.S. who organize really beautiful shared spaces to connect the QD Korean diaspora. So when we first got in touch with you, Christine, we had a brief exchange about your positionality as a second generation Korean American speaking to us and to a largely Korean adoptee audience. So we thought it would be really great to chat a bit about this before delving into more of our questions uh, around your spiritual and community-based practice. So I guess the first one, if you don't mind sharing, um, what exposure or relationships have you had with Korean adoptees throughout the multiple positions you've held? Um, I would say, so personally, I have, you know, a few friends who are Korean adoptees um, or and adoptees of other birth countries. And so I've learned a lot from their stories and experiences. Uh, but in terms of um, my vocational roles, I've actually not met many Korean adoptees. Um, and I think it's telling of several dynamics, maybe just even of my own life. And one is that I often found myself like, interstices of insularity and uh, outsiderness. And so um, within the Korean immigrant community, it felt very insular and homogenous to me, even though that wasn't really the case. And there's actually quite a lot of diversity, but at least in the circles I was in, um, I don't think there were um, Korean adoptees like in those spaces. So there is that. And then other spaces I would find myself in would be either like majority white or majority BIPOC, in which diasporic Koreans, let alone, let alone like Korean adoptees, were a minority. Mm. Yeah, so I would say my contact was very limited. And um, when I was doing immigrant rights work, uh, there were, I, so my work revolved uh, more closely around like Latinx organizers and communities. Um, but there were like partner groups um, that worked like with Korean communities that I remember. And uh, when we were doing like anti-deportation work, I do remember like learning about stories of individuals like Adam Crasper who were deported back to Korea or deported to Korea, I should say. Um, and so there was some of that intersection of, I think, the complexity of immigration status and sort of what does it mean, right, to deport someone to a place that they actually have had not any contact with. And so I remember being really, I think, compelled um, by their, uh, like Adam's story and some other folks um, and sort of the intersections of that. Um, but it was not something that like my org necessarily like uh, focused on. And so it was always some, like adjacent in, in our work. Do you think um, there may be some particular resonances or connections between your second gen experiences and those of adopted Koreans? So I do have some reflections on that, and uh, I'm please feel free to like correct or yeah, I guess like revise <laughs> if they don't feel resonant. Um, but in terms of like, reflecting as a second gen, right, and I'm, I'm thinking about certain themes that might be shared. I think one is around sort of distance or proximity to a quote unquote native or home culture, as well as land and history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that proximity or access to Korean indigenous and cultural practices and traditions uh, depend on a lot of factors that may feel beyond our control, right? Such as like where our geographic location is, like who our caretakers were, and so forth. And so I think even within the second gen Korean like community and experience, there's a lot of variance in how people may feel connected to their Koreanness. 
Um, and for me, like even visiting Korea or being with Korean nationals, like can be a jarring experience because I both recognize similarities or maybe a recognition uh, with one another, but then also a lot of dissonance. And in my own attempts to like reconnect or to identify what my Korean lineage means or looks like, um, it can be complicated. Like there have been moments where I've like idealized what Koreanness is. And other moments where I like reject something as like, oh, that's just Korean and not me. <laughs> and, and then everything in between, right? Sort of a mm. spectrum of how I relate my, that as an identity marker. So I think the questions of like identity and belonging, uh, maybe a shared space. Um, and then also I think the complicated notion of homeland, mm. that to me it's like not tied to a place, uh, but it's actually with other people uh, with shared and distinct experiences in relation to a place and culture, right? And so, and I think sort of that um, lo- there can be like painful emotions related to this, like sort of a sense of loss or longing of like, what is a homeland to me right, or to us? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's also, a po- uh, I think, a possibility of like healing and sort of expanding like what that means, right? That it's not bound by one p- definition or one way of um, experiencing that homeland. Um, so I remember like I was listening to a podcast uh, called Code Switch uh, that NPR hosts and they were interviewing a Korean adoptee um, in the U.S. named Caitlin Howe. And she shared a quote that um, an adult adopt Korean adoptee shared at a annual conference of Korean adoptees in Chicago. And this person said, quote, you guys, Korean adoptees are my homeland, end quote. Mm-hmm. And yeah, listening to that was just so profound um, for me. I think it reminded me that like how we identify and find a sense of home or origin, that there's so many iterations of what that can look like, even within this broader umbrella of Korean diaspora. Um, and I really appreciate that there's space for that kind of difference. Um, and I think for me, that difference is something that's like not to be like overlooked or um, maybe viewed as a challenge, but it's an actual like, an area of like growth and learning. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that like proximity and access overall seems to be um, potentially a shared um, question or experience. It's a somewhat common thread, I guess, in adoptee narratives or discussions about feeling inauthentically Korean mm. and feeling like there's no real legitimate stake on Koreanness in a sort of recognized way and that's so like that a lot of adoptees um i think struggle a bit with what it means to be korean if there is no memory or um no conscious connection we can't speak the language things like that um i mean i think authenticity is just a bad thing (laughs) but i'm wondering if like authenticity comes up also in the kind of second gen maybe experience yeah uses that language yeah, definitely. Like this, I think can occur, like be felt in many ways. Like, for example, um, like I mentioned, my parents migrated in the 70s. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like sort of their cultural understanding and like their Koreanness is sort of like uh, frozen in time, right? Of like what it was like for them, like in their youth or what whatnot of Korea. And Korea itself has, right, as a country has changed so drastically since then. And so like, I also see sort of the dissonance like in their experience of like when they do visit Korea again. And mm. and for me, like as a second gen, it's like I, I feel that when like even like the concepts that we're gonna be talking about later, like Chung, right? There are things like I find myself latching onto, sort of like, wow, this is such 
like a powerful, like cultural, like concept, right. Or like, it means a lot to me. And then when I talk to like Korean nationals or like relatives, they're sort of like, mm, not a big deal. Right? <laughs> yeah. You like second and like make a big deal out of this. Right. And so I think like in moments like those, which is not indicative of like all Korean nationals, of course, but um, it just reminds me that, yeah, just like being like on different land. Right. And like having different like history unfolding, like in the, in the localized context, like does uh, it's very significant. And um, so there's, I think, like yeah there's like those moments where it's like oh yeah i don't know if i'm like korean or um even though i reject the notion of like one right way of being korean um and the other thing is like when like i have visited korea right right away people know like oh you're a kopo or like you're a second gen right you're not like korean korean <laughs> and so like i think even like those experiences too are like reminders um and mm. Uh, the other aspect I think of, I think being not just second gen or I imagine like Korean adoptee, but uh, a part of a diasporic identity is this like that we occupy liminality, right? That we're always like in between and not fully in either, but also still like a part of both or multiple like identities or experiences. And so I think that can have a sense of like um, being on the boundaries or on the edges and um, there's also this sense of like intra, like multiple like parts of ourselves that cannot be encapsulated by like one aspect, which for that to me also includes a Koreanness. Well, okay, this is a really big question. What is healing work, and how do we commit to it? <laughs> Very big question. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, I think that healing work, you know, can take many forms and is largely determined by the person or community of people who are undergoing the work of healing in their lives um, and in their community spaces. So for me, healing work is like a path, not like an outcome or a destination, but an ongoing commitment to oneself and also a commitment to others um, and committing to practicing a kind of world or future um, that is more liberative um, and that is more um, embracing of, of who we are. And so this path, I think, is also one that is not fixed, but is porous and emergent and adaptive and responsive to the various circumstances and conditions of our lives. Um, and to me, healing work is the interdependence and connectedness of the spiritual and the social, so the inner and the outer, right? And um, sort of also cared for myself, but also in relationship to others. Um, and, and also like other beings, not just other humans, but with the land and with other living entities. Um, and I think healing work is not bypassing or ignoring the deep sufferings that we feel, right? But giving space to it and trying to learn what is my suffering or what is my pain like revealing or telling me or telling this world? Um, and how can we, because there's no, like, this is a collective, like, well-being, right? A collective way in which I show up. Um, how can I have different ways in, to be in the world? And I, for me specifically, it's also like, how can I be differently um, in, in a world that is rampant with like capitalism, right? Right. Supremacy, ableism, heteropatriarchy, all of that. And how do I find healing from those oppressive dimensions? I would love to share also like uh, the notion of, and the movement and the work of healing justice work. 
which uh, is a movement created by queer and trans people of color, uh, specifically black and brown femmes who center working class, poor, disabled, um, and Southern rural healers. And uh, Kara Page, who is a a black feminist queer cultural memory worker and organizer uh, says that healing justice identifies how we can holistically respond to and intervene on generational trauma and violence and to bring collective practices that can impact and transform the consequences of oppression on our bodies, hearts, and minds. Um, and so I just wanted to like share this because I just like feel like it's so powerful in terms of recognizing the ways that trauma and violence is intergenerational or it can have intergenerational uh, effects. Um, and that I also, I think the desire for a response to be holistic uh, that's done in community and recognizes that oppression seeps through uh, all aspects of ourselves, right? Like uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally. Um, and so to me, this healing justice framework is really powerful in bringing together all these aspects of a systemic and also like personal and interpersonal interpersonal um, violence and uh, disruptions that often cause us suffering. So you've mentioned that um, that you found Korean concepts like Chong and Han um, personally beneficial and also useful in your um, spiritual care work. This is another really like big, difficult question, but uh, <laughs> would you mind explaining those for us and our audience? I will try. <laughs> and, um, both Han and Chang, you know, it's often deemed as untranslatable directly into English. Um, and so I'll start with Han, uh, which is a feel, uh, feeling of perhaps like unresolved and accumulated pain, anger, grief, resentment, that can be both personal, but also collective. Um, so for example, it can be experienced on a personal level, like let's say like being a, a woman and experiencing like uh, gender oppression happening in the intimate household setting. Um, but that's actually also really right connected to the broader um, like heteropatriarchy at work, right? And so um, it might be an individual experiencing that, but there's also like a collective element to that and history to that. And there is a, a Korean like political dissident and poet Kim Chiha who like actually like had this whole theology of Han, and um, he describes Han as like an accumulation of suppressed and condensed experiences of oppression, and when accumulated uh, is inherited and transmitted in the blood of the people or a people eating monster. And so I think uh, definitely he's touching upon sort of like the psychosomatic aspect, right, of Han and how when one feels uh, a great injustice or a lack, right, in their life, um, that, that, that feeling, the pain that comes with it is not metabolized, but I feel like it's sort of like deeply embedded, right? And then mm -hmm. there's a term called Hwabyong, which is sort of like an actual psychosomatic illness caused by someone experiencing a lot of Han. Um, and mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, I, I would say that Han can be like feelings of sorrow, right? Sadness, anger, um, but it's not just a transient feeling, but it's like just becomes a part of one's right personhood or like their experience. And it may affect how they view their experiences or the conditions around them. Um, and it can also be generative because Han has led many people, right, uh, to be very resilient and overcome like immense mm -hmm. uh, obstacles um, and there's like, you know, that story, like, or an example would be like, if some, uh, a woman maybe was not able to, um, 
get access to education growing up, right? Like, like let's say like 1960s Korea, and then maybe like her family wanted uh, only allowed the son of the household to like get to study. So then like that lack of education can then become a source of han for that person, right? Sort of like I was able, never able to uh, get the education that I wanted, uh, right? Uh, because I was a, uh, I'm a female. Um, and then that, you know, can maybe have led to what they feel like um, series of, like realities for them then like based on that lack of education or like missed opportunities or whatnot. So like that Han is like a part of then how they experience the world um, and very like uh, understandably so. Um, and then let's say if they were to have uh, children, then them having this hyper-focus and vigilance on their children having like the best education or like the ch child must like succeed. And part of that is out of their own Han, right? Of like not having had access to that, then really wanting that manifest for, for their child. And so I feel like uh, that example sort of demonstrates the, like the intergenerationality of Chan and also the ways in which is also not just a negative, right, um, way of being, but it can also actually be really activating for change. I guess I'll move on to Chung. Um, which I believe often people sort of compare Han and Chung as like two sides, but uh, I think Chung can be described as an emergent feeling of affection, attachment, bond, um, or even bondage, right, that occurs between individuals. So it can be considered a feeling, but also I think a relationality. So there's a Korean-American theologian, Wani and Joe, who says that Chung is something that arises, it merges out of in-betweenness. Hmm. Um, and so Chung can be... Uh, be felt in many different ways, right? It can be sensory. It's sort of the connection that you feel when you share a meal with a friend, right? That like the hospitality, the camaraderie. Um, it can be uh, emotional. It can be felt through like serving another person, right? Or um, by living with somebody, you sort of get accustomed to their habits, right? And get to know them in a way that like people that don't live with that person don't have access to. So then there's that like attachment, and then it can also be communal. Um, so, for example, when there's a natural disaster and like a people come together to um, to repair or to like care for each other, it's sort of that solidarity, right? So, I think these are all like different aspects of Chong um, that can be manifested. Um, and I think Chong can also have both like constructive and then also like I would say like for lack of a better word like destructive elements. So like, uh, I think like growing up, I was always taught like Chung is sort of just that like nostalgic or just attachment you feel to someone that's probably a good thing because it means you are open to other people, right? Um, but I think where Chung can be destructive is like in power in relationships where there are like power dynamics, where it's not a shared power. And so then the attachment one feels like it's actually a bondage, sort of like in a situation where uh, a household with like domestic abuse, right? And perhaps like the person being abused um, may find it difficult to leave because they still feel that chung with the person that's uh, abusing them. Um, so I think there's like also like different sub words to describe chung, like um, that sort of reflect these different facets and dimensions. As you were talking, I was really interested in how you would relate those two concepts to healing and healing work? Like, is it a matter of recognizing that sort of accumulated accumulation of a, like experiences of oppression or yeah. Like how, how do you work with that? I guess once we identify Han and Chong. Yeah. That's really sort of at the core of like what I'm still, I think unfolding in my 
practice. Um, and so I think, first of all, these are really helpful like frameworks um, and understanding people's experiences um, beyond what a more like westernized like teaching can offer. Because um, I think both of these concepts are definitely about like relationality and um, I think life experiences that like without these languages, like, it would be like hard to sort of recognize like what's at play for someone, right? Like in, whether in their suffering or whether in their um, sense of like connection with others. And so uh, I just find them to be really like uh, an expansive way to understand like human experience. Because um, I also think that these experiences are not only for Koreans, it's just that Koreans happen to have like a terminology for it um, and a, perhaps also like a history with it. Uh, but that can be felt right uh, transnationally, trans like culturally. So I, mm. yeah, I do think like when like meeting with someone and for example, if they're experiencing Han, there's definitely, I think, a different approach I would take than if um, the, with the limited maybe concepts that like, my other training has offered of like, okay, are you feeling angry? And then Han <laughs> feels like a, a richer, like a deeper way to sort of uh, delve into sort of like, okay, what is the suffering and how is this showing up in your life? And right, just sort of the manifestation of it in uh, in ways that are not just like situational, right? But it's like a life uh, long thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, Chong is actually how I understand care for my like in my own practice. So like when I like, I struggled a lot with the chaplaincy model because I think being a former organizer, it's like when I'm meeting with folks, I'm like, okay, I can't just sit here and just say like, thank you for sharing. Like, right. Like I hope my presence was healing and, and that's <laughs> it, right. It just felt like, oh, like that's just, that's sort of like, it feels like it's a, a violence in and of itself to just listen like, okay, thank you. And that's it. And not recognize sort of, wow, like the systemic uh, implications, right. Of like one person's experience. And so, uh, to me, like then Chong is a way, like an activating energy, I think, to feel that interdependence of like sort of this person's suffering is connected to these larger systems in which I also suffer. And out of mm. that recognition of that like shared, like sharedness, I guess, uh, there's an attachment there. And then that leads me to a deeper commitment uh, to, to be for a feature that's right counter to those things that are causing pain. Um, so I feel like Chong is that site of like liminality and being able to like connect with each other. Um, and that in some ways to me also like this, this, uh, responsibility to the other person, right? Saying like, I, there's like a relational, um, ethics of recognizing that Mm -hmm. we are still connected. Right. Um, and that, Mm -hmm. that can, I think, uh, for me be actually, also what gives meaning to presence because in some ways I think presence uh, is anti-capitalist in the sense that you're not there to say like, there's a linear path of healing. Like we're going to fix this right away, but there's something about like just even being together and even like sharing in your processing of an emotion or a situation um, that there's something happening there. Right. Um, that hopefully mm. uh, is activating and healing. And so, um, I think that's how I sort of understand it. Like it also just offers me a language beyond what just the chaplaincy model like has given me um, to sort of express uh, why I feel committed to showing up with people and to also have others show up for me. It's a, I think for me, like an indigenous resource that then 
provides me, I think, with a sense of like there are other practitioners um, who experience, like who understand Chong and Han, and like I'm a part of, in a, like a lineage of that. Um, and mm-hmm. I also say like I am like you know open to learning and like um, trying to understand like also like Korean spiritual traditions that can then meet the needs of experiences of Han and Chong that let's say like Western uh, treatments don't know. Right. And so uh, I know there's a lot of like connection with like Korean shamans and mudangs like offering, right. Like rituals uh, to release Han. So then I think, okay, I'm not a shaman, but like in my care practice, like how do I create or cultivate a space in which someone can just even like release their Han through their sharing. And so I think it's sort of like those connections um, there. um, And it's not to, I think, disregard, um, like uh, these long-standing traditions and practices, I like respect them and like uh, feel like I'm a learner of like um, uh, what they've offered and like how they're also like practiced today. Uh, but then being able to sort of apply that right in sort of the space I'm in, which is like chaplaincy care and uh, being with people who are, um, yeah, just I think facing a lot of like traumas and just ongoing like violence in their lives. And so then how are there, like how can Han and Chong help me uh, show up in a way um, that's, um, more attentive and, um, yeah, responsive uh, to their experience. Intergenerationality came up a bit um, earlier, so but it seems to me that you know a lot of knowledge or know-how is passed on down through generations. Um, guess we're interested in your thoughts on how adoptees might navigate that considering a lot I'd say most have not reconnected with birth family I would say like even in my own journey um, some of these concepts while they were familiar like let's say the term Han and Chong was used or I've heard it used um, but it was never really like explained to me in um, sort of like the roots of them and sort of their dimensions. And so a lot of my own identification with these concepts have been through learning um, historically, textually, um, and in community. Um, And a lot of this also for me was cultivated while I was in seminary, um, because I was like very, very lucky to be able to study uh, and be mentored by two Korean women theologians. Uh, One Mm -hmm. is uh, Professor Tara Hyung-Yong Chung, and she's a Korean ecofeminist um, theologian who is of Christian and Buddhist belongings and uh, was part of the Minjung or people's movement in Korea in the 80s, like the student freedom movement. Um, mm-hmm. So she was a teacher. And then another teacher was Professor Suyeon Pak. And she's a 1.5 generation uh, Korean American who grew up in the Korean, uh, Presbyterian Korean church context. Um, and she was very integral in my discernment with like chaplaincy and all of that. And, um, and so as I like learned from them, uh, as in their classroom settings and also just also from their life experiences and them introducing me to like their friends and network, um, it sort of became this unfolding relationally. And, um, and so, yeah, in short, I would say, I think there's lots of resources out there, um, there's lots of people, right, like grappling and like integrating these concepts like in, in their fields, uh, whether mm. it's uh, as a care practitioner, whether as a theologian, whether as um, a psychotherapist and so forth. And so I feel like having access to those resources on one level seems um, doable uh, or accessible. And that if possible, if there are practitioners or a community of people who are interested, right, in exploring this or 
or sharing that, like, I think being in community learning space is also something that I think can be very powerful. Um, and then going back to, I think, our notion of like, um, like the falsehood of authenticity, I actually think there's so much that uh, people embody, right? Like, and uh, including Korean adoptees in terms of like trans historical memory. Um, and so I think sort of being able to make connections with one's own like life experience, whether or not there may be a direct connection to these concepts, but if these concepts are resonant, then I think uh, that means something and that's adding to sort of how this is showing up, right, in different ways uh, in different people's lives uh, who have a K Korean lineage. And so I think, it's, yeah, I think p taking hold, taking up space in that sense and I think continuing the conversation is also really uh, important, important. And um, yeah, um, and so like to just also, if it's okay to share a little bit of like my own story, like for example, with Chong, like I grew up like, um, I would always like have a hard time saying goodbye to people. So like we'd have relatives that visited and they would stay for two days. And during the goodbyes, I would be crying. And it was just like really like weirdly like emotional. Right. And then a lot of the adults would just say like, Oh, you have too much Chong. So that was sort of how I came to like hear of the term Chong. I'm like, what is this Chong? And like, why is this happening to me? Like, uh, so, um, right. And so like I associate Chong as like, okay, it's just oh, like intense emotional like attachment. But it wasn't until later on, so, like, after I've studied more about, like, also, like, um, Korean history, right, and this notion of, like, and uh, the reality that Korea is still a divided peninsula, right, and that there's this history of separation uh, physically mm -hmm. on the land, but also with families and for various reasons. Um, then I sort of made the connection, like, oh, like, my grief at saying these goodbyes is a part of a remembering of how our this country or, like, our, like, this people have a history of being separated, right? And so um, not to like over like spiritualize it, but it was just really, I think, profound for me to make that connection and to recognize, okay, this like the strong emotion reaction is all maybe part of my disposition, but I also believe it's, uh, yeah, just an intergenerational or transhistorical memory that's being remembered. And perhaps our bodies are exhibiting or giving us emitting Han and Chong as ways to be memory carriers, right? Whether it's explicitly defined as, described as us or not. And so, um, yeah, I would also say, I think for the experiences of Korean adoptees in which uh, these terms or concepts um, resonate, that I feel like those are bearers of those memories of a much broader, I think, a collective experience too. I, I really like, you know, how you said that if, if those concepts resonate, then that in itself tells you something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaks to something even if even if we can't sort of articulate it or conceptualize it. Um, I thought that was really, really powerful. Um, building off of that, what you just said about our bodies as memory carriers, I was interested in. So I guess maybe speaking for myself personally, like I am interested in the concepts of like Han and Chong, um, but this and this might also just be my my personality, but. I feel like my go-to is, oh, I'll learn about it, I'll read about it. Mm. I'll try and understand it as a concept. Mm -hmm. um, and what you're sort of suggesting is that there's a resonance that takes place on a much more corporeal level or a much more bodily level, and that maybe my intellect can't quite get me there. My body might already know mm -hmm. that something is speaking to me. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak a bit about that connection between 
learning things in our heads or using our heads to get at something Mm -hmm. to feeling that through our bodies Mm. and having that be instructive. Yeah. Um, I will share in more broad strokes, hopefully, and then maybe we can get a little bit more granular um, as things emerge. But uh, yeah, I think that shift from like a very head focus, right? Knowledge focus to actually like being body centric um, to me is all about going back to like presence, right? And being present to how our body is feeling. And um, I think, you know, many of us may have different relationships with our bodies and histories with um, how our bodies feel, right? Or uh, whether the body is a source of pain or pleasure, both. Um, but I think it's very important to pay attention to what our body is telling us to not, I know there are ways that in which like bypassing or can be a coping mechanism, but to really allow those feelings um, and sensations to to like, give space to them. Um, I think it's really important because, and to me, that's where like mindfulness meditations is really helpful because although it's about mindfulness, uh, to me, like that practice or mode of meditation is basically allowing uh, the f- sensations and feelings to be in, in, in my daily life where there's so many distractions or there's so many ways that I can like go to like quick solutions to not feel certain emotions or physical sensations. Um that meditative space really offers me, um, yeah, I think like concentrated attention to it. Um, and then with those feelings um, and sensations to not to be non-judgmental and non-directive, but just allowing them to be, right? And I think that learning or discerning from our body's information or cues is something that's also like a learning process for us in which uh, we need to cultivate the practice of trusting our bodies and trusting the gut, our inner instinct that emerges from what the body is like also sharing with us. And so, um, and the reason why, like, I, I think this is important is like, you know, I shared that I have a, like several chronic conditions and one of the most frustrating parts of it is like when I'm in like a healthcare setting, like I will share my symptoms and because there's no diagnosis that the health provider can offer me, they will just say like, okay, there's nothing we can do. Um, or like, why don't like, at least you have the, right, at least you're healthy in this way. Or um, so basically, like, uh, I feel a little bit gaslit when those interactions, right, sort of like, okay, there's no diagnosis, and therefore no treatment, then and then, then that's it, we're cut off, like, there's no other forms of care that they refer me to or whatnot. Mm. And so um, I found myself like in those, because of those interactions, I, I started to actually like, dislike and mistrust my body, right, sort of like, why are you like mm. feeling these things? There's no like medically speaking, like something like there's no diagnosis for you, right? Sort of like maybe it's just in your head or right. So this spiral of like questioning then the things I'm actually feeling um, and have like overwhelmed and overtaken my life. Um, mm. And so then, I, yeah, that's where I think, yeah, we're being present to those feelings then and remembering like giving space to those, like even the pain for me has been a source of like, I think survival and being able to continue even though um, there's no like healing or treatment that um, has I, I can foresee at the moment. So um, yeah, so I think sort of just that um, being able to give space to it, um, it's very simple, but um, in my own life, I just found it very hard to, because I, uh, one of my coping mechanisms is to detach and to disassociate. So then just even being aware of my body is like something that I have to work towards. 
Um, and then the resource that I found very helpful is um, there's a book that was published earlier this year. Uh, it was written by Lama Rod Owens, who is a Dharma teacher, and it's called Love and Rage. And basically, he teaches and offers practices on how to metabolize our anger into a force for liberation. And he has like very specific practices that integrate both like body awareness and, and care. And I found that so helpful because of the ways that it centers the body, but also for me, anger is an emotion that I find very difficult to, to sort through or to like even acknowledge. And so um, he had very specific meditative practices like to then give space and to name them and to, to learn from them to not feel like I, this is something I need to like overcome, but that what information is my anger giving me in similar way of like what information is my body giving me. And so, um, yeah, I feel like um, those to me, that's been a very important way in which I've ha- I've shifted from just like head to practice. Mm. Um, and then I think being with other people and it's also a way to learn for me how others learn from their bodies or give space to their bodies. Um, and there's also, right, like our bodies also are different depending on who we're with. And so I think that's also very uh, insightful and can give us insight into sort of like where are healing spaces for me, where are spaces where it actually is like perhaps toxic or um, not the kind of space that gives me life. And so um, I feel like there's that aspect too. We were wondering if you might yeah, have any thoughts about how we can each deal with feelings like um, anger and grief and loss about what could have been or, you know, might have been this year. Um, sure. Um, so something I've noticed in meeting with folks virtually is that there's uh, – immense sense of guilt that a lot of people are feeling um especially like sort of like i'm not sure if i should be feeling these things when so many people are dying or right there are like people who are like in worse situations i am and so forth and going back to what we're talking about with even like giving space for our body uh, and the cues that it emits um is also i think giving space for just the accumulating grief and loss that people are feeling in so many different right levels um, and aspects of their lives. And so um, I think just being able to name them, acknowledge them, um, not judge them, but just to be tenderhearted to those feelings um, is really important. Um, and Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, he says that in each of us, there is like a young suffering child. And when we have difficulty, um, you know, traumatic experiences or wounds from our childhood can, you know, reemerge. And so like, I I think in like manner, like that in this time of like much vulnerability, uh, that there may be also like past hurts or just ongoing trauma that's right emerging in new ways. And so I think, Mm um, I think being really attentive, um, to those, um, to those dynamics is uh, really helpful, like is important in these times. Um, and for me, that's where like rituals are really helpful. So I mentioned like meditations, right? Uh, for me, is one way to like give space for all of these feelings and grief. Um, but to me, like uh, I think rituals, um, 
where we can observe uh, or just name the loss that we're collectively feeling. So I know like, uh, for example, Faith Ladders Network, they had a series of like um, observances of just um, reading the names of people who have passed due to COVID. Um, They had it virtually. And um, I think just even that act of like naming the names who have passed, right, it can be very powerful and sort of ground us to sort of the sober reality, but also a way to honor uh, people who are not able to perhaps even have um, the types of uh, funerals, right, or transitions that normally we could um, because of COVID distancing as well. Um, so there's things like that. Um, for me, I love to burn candles. Um, I'm not like sense sensitive, thankfully, so I'm able to, but, um, and just even seeing as the candle burns for me, like uh, sometimes I lift an intention or an emotion I'm feeling and as the candle burns, sort of imagining whether I want the burning or the ash to represent that feeling to sort of be lessened or dissipate, um, or that as the candle burns and the feeling might still be there, but recognizing, and I'm also still here. And um, to me, that offers both like space for those feelings that are hard and also still uh, in some ways um, be aware and thankful of my like presence or aliveness in the world, right? With, despite and uh, with those um, sufferings as well. So, um, yeah, I think those are like some ways um, that I I feel is important for us to to name. Um, and again, like going back to the Han, right? Part of Han is that if we're not able to release it, right, or to metabolize the sufferings in our lives, then it just continues to embed and like eat away, right, at our inwards or just even in a, right physically speaking too and so um, I think being able to re- find release however that may look for a person like if possible um, to like carve out those spaces and and to practice them I was really struck by something you said um, earlier in our conversation about I think you said that healing worth healing work is a path and not a destination. And I think like one of the big themes that's come up in this conversation is the ongoingness of, of it all and how it's, you know, like we want solutions. We want suffering to end. We don't like to think that it's just going to keep going. Um, I guess I'm wondering with, with your acceptance of that, that, you know, that this is a path, not a destination, um, that it's ongoing work. How do you re- re-energize yourself to continue doing that work? Um, they're very simple <laughs> things, but uh, sleep is very important <laughs> to me. <laughs> and it's hard with a toddler uh, to get sleep, but I still uh, try to sleep because, um, yeah, I think just to me that is a form of um, caring for my body and recognizing with all that's going on, a basic thing I can offer is to allow myself to sleep and rest um, and that rest mm. can be resistance as well. Um, mm. So there's that. Mm. Um, I also just, I think creative spaces. Um, so like I love reading music and the arts just, I think to uh, be inspired. And I, I love how like artists are able to like represent, right. Things as they are, but also things as they could be. And so for me, it's to like be in those modes, right. Of creativity, um, a possibility. Um, and, um, also I love like 
I get rejuvenized by collaborating with people. So like, uh, I've been like, was really thankful to be able to collaborate with Sandy on that tongue workshop. And um, to me, that was such a healing uh, process because uh, it was sort of like, we were creating a new space together and new ways to both like articulate care, but also like actually hopefully enact care in that, in that workshop space setting as well. And so um, I think being able to, yeah, collaborate um, is a way to both care, like find healing, but also um, broaden, right? Like the work that I might, I may be doing, like sort of like if I feel like it's limited or like I'm sort of in this cycle or in a rut, um, that's just sort of like a rejuvenation of like new energy and insights. Um, and then I think also like being able to amplify joy, right? <laughs> like to be able to um, name the joys in our life as when they emerge um, and to celebrate other people's joys, like whether it's my friends or, right. Or even recognizing in like through history, like moments of like transformation and change and like to hold on to that as sort of like, uh, for me as a grounding and like activating, um, way to remember like that this current, uh, reality that is, you know, very real to me, um, is also, but not the only narrative, right. Or it's not the only, um, a moment, but that there are been many others who have both lived and survived this moment, those who may not have survived, but have created paths for future folks like me to be on. And I think um, that also then leads to like, okay, what is for the next generation of folks, right? Like, how can I live so that this will be a better world for them? Um, and I think that can feel burdensome, right? Or heavy at times, but to me, that's also a way to re-energize sort of like, they're gonna be living in both like similar, but also vastly different contexts. And um, I think a lot about that with like sort of my baby as well, sort of like what will their future look like and sort of, um, I, yeah, I think that um, that has sort of given me more of like the, like how important this is. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I would say those are some ways in which I feel re-energized. Thank you. <laughs> So you mentioned um, a workshop that you recently did with Sandy Hong on uh, Jong, um, and you've kindly offered to uh, facilitate um, a little self Chong practice with us now to finish the episode. Mm. Yes. Uh, so thank you so much for um, providing the space and for being willing to participate in this closing uh, practice together. Um, so I'm going to begin by sharing a Korean saying, uh, which translates to mom's hands are medicine hands. Um, and so mothers and grandmothers or caretakers, you know, will say this when a child has hurt themselves or is sick. Um, and they'll usually like rub that area of pain um, with gentleness and care. And uh, to me, it's like sort of a way to transmit healing power through touch and love. Um, and often, I think that sometimes we may think that healing hands is something that's offered by someone else, right? Um, perhaps with a certain authority or right or um, training or whatnot, um, or whatever else it may be. Um, or like our own experiences of our caretakers may uh, or may not align with this ethos of like healing hands. And so I want to just acknowledge um, sort of all of those experiences that people may carry. Um, and however your history um, with it is, um, I also want to invite you to consider how your own hands can be healing hands for yourself. Um, so this mm -hmm. is a way to practice self-chong mm -hmm. and also uh, to care for our bodies with our 
uh, with our own body. <laughs> so I'm going to invite uh, you to raise both your hands uh, to your eye level. Um, and then just take a look at them with like loving kindness, uh, just appreciation, just how these hands are extension of you and um, help you be in this world, right? And all the, the work that it enacts. And then now I invite you to think of an area of your body that uh, is in physical pain or discomfort. Or if there's an area in your life that could use care and love um, that like a physical body part may like uh, represent that. Um, and then that may be maybe a more of an emotional, spiritual or mental area uh, that's in need of attention. Um, so once you've identified that area, I'm going to ask you to place both your hands um, to that body part or area and just touch that area with um, both tenderness, but also firmness. And uh, I'm going to invite you to offer yourself healing touch. Um, and this may be that you might give a steady pressure to that area so that you're generating warmth. Um, or it may be that like you're rubbing it in a circular motion and that you're generating energy. So allow yourself to feel the energy that your hands are both generating and emanating. Um, and think, uh, yeah, just imagine how that energy then is touching that area of pain. Hopefully offering it comfort, a little bit of respite from pain. And you can continue to do this for um, as long as you need or want to. Um, and as you do so, um, just ask you to remember that uh, you already have the strength and wisdom and resources needed uh, for your healing journey. And that you are enough and that you can always offer yourself the healing touch um, that you're maybe in need of. And as we do so, um, this is a way to offer Chang to yourself, um, that you can offer yourself compassion, affection, solidarity, forgiveness, uh, vulnerability, and that this is a way to be uh, in right relationship or maybe better relationship with your body, um, mind, and spirit. And they just, yeah, I can ask you to continue to sit in uh, the energy and the warmth of uh, your hands. And that as this practice ends, um, we can carry this energy and warmth uh, of our healing hands into the rest of our days and other interactions we have with people. Um, and that this is a reminder that we can only offer to others what we can offer ourselves. And that we can practice. Um, self-chung uh, for both survival and nourishment and that it can help us to then cultivate chung with others uh, in solidarity for collective healing and transformation. Thank you for joining me in that practice. Thank you so much. Actually, as soon as you said the words like Omma Son and Yakson, I like it already just really uh, resonated with me strongly. So mm, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that, for that ending. Um, 
ever, I don't know, guiding us through that. I don't know what the word is. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was a really beautiful way to, to end um, this episode and, and the conversation that we've, we've had with you today. So um, yeah, thank you again so, so much for making the time and, um, and also being so thoughtful in the way that you wanted to speak to us and, and mindful um, of, of our different histories and, and positions. And um, yeah, we, we really, really appreciate that and appreciate your time and experiences and expertise. Well, thank you both so much for inviting me into the space, um, just your generosity and um, also feeling a lot of the tongue that came through um, in this conversation and also the broader community that um, that you're a part of. And so I just really appreciate it and uh, feel really just blessed to be able to have met you both uh, in this space. Thank you. Yeah, this is really like a reminder of um, the, the connections that you can make and the the chong that can arise um, through the screen. So, <laughs> check out our new logo by the super talented Meg O'Shea and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and recommend us to your friends and networks.